thank you, all of you, for being here. I appreciate it. I'm, um, apparently, what I'm preaching on is highly sensitive. You know, I'm the one who posts on Facebook, and I make the little graphics and stuff to put on Facebook. And, you know, I pride myself because I've gotten better and better. I was telling Ken, I said, I wear 20 hats. I can't wear 21, so he's going to help me out because I can't wear all of them. But I've learned to do the graphics and post on Facebook and everything like that. And usually my graphics are good enough, and I boost it on Facebook, that I get 30-plus likes or more just on my graphic and my... my um, description. I got two last week. Two. Because it's on offense. I'm speaking about being offended. And let me tell you, I think everybody is offended these days. Everybody and their uncle has got some kind of offense going on and nobody wants to hear about it. I was, last week I was praying. I said, Lord, what do I need to preach on? You know, I got the Secrets of the Vine by um, Dave Wilkinson. He does, um, Prayer of Jabez, and I love Secrets of the Vine. It's a really good book, and I thought, oh, I'll preach on that. That's real positive, and, you know, it's how we can all prosper and all that kind of thing. And I was praying, and I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm up here in the mountains where I'm already offended because everything that's going on up there, maybe I need to preach about offense. Maybe we need a little refresher course on being unoffendable. You know, I did a... I did a um, message on that a couple years ago on being unoffendable. And I'm like, well, maybe we need to review our offense level and where we're supposed to be as Christians. So I decided to do it and got no response off of Facebook. So apparently it's a hot button for people. So it means I should preach on it. Don't you think? Maybe. Maybe not. So I got this, you know, off my favorite place, the Google. It is not a question of whether you will be given the opportunity to be offended, but rather what will be your response when that time comes. The current crisis that we are in now, I believe, is safe to say a a principality, an atmosphere of offense. Everyone is being needled and poked to be offended by everybody else. The right to the left, the left to the right, pull down the statues, riot, have, pro, you know, have protests supporting people, have protests against people, free speech, not free speech, what kind of mask should you wear, what, what not kind of mask should you wear. Everybody is riled up to be offended about everything. And I believe that is the atmosphere that we're in in 2020. There is a power and a principality working here. It's called the spirit of offense. And we have to be aware of it, and we have got to consciously come out of partnership with it. And I am talking to myself. I told Chris today, I said, um, it used to be when I was scheduled to preach, I'd be like, oh, I got to preach this week. And, you know, and, and you know, Bob knows this. When you start studying something, all of a sudden, it is life to me to study it, and I start getting ideas, I start getting creative juices flowing, and I told Chris, not even, I don't even dread it anymore. I'm not even like, I don't mind the research, I don't mind putting it together, because it is so life-giving to get into the Bible and study. Once you get going with your ideas, it brings me personally so much life, and I reflect back on what goes along with it. It's, it was just, it's a good lesson for me. I'm preaching to myself every single time. You know that, right? So I want to just um, go to Matthew 18, 7. This is one of my verses, and it's, I'm going to read it in like three different translations, because again, translations can say things in a little bit different way, which is, 
Matthew 18, 7. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to the man by whom the offense comes. That's the New King James Version. NIV says it this way, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. And then the message, what sorrow awaits the world? Because it tempts people to sin, temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? So Strong's, that's a Bible study um, commentary of, oh, my gum's in there, I can't even read that. Um, (laughs) I know, right? Helps define what the word is when um, it takes us back to the Greek so that we can know what it was in the original language. And Strong's defines an offense this way as a scandal, a snare, a cause of displeasure or sin, an occasion to fall, a stumbling block, a thing that offends an offense. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I think there's three kinds of offended people. Offense, let's just get this out of the way. Offense has to do with an injustice. Something has been done either to you. You've suffered an injustice. Something, you believe something's been done to you. Or something's been done to somebody else and you have a third-party offense. You're offended on their behalf. Offense has to do with you feeling like somehow you've been treated unfairly. And these, these things can look like this, like you've been judged, you've been criticized, favor has been withheld that's deserved, you're being unfavorably compared to other people, you've been betrayed, or even someone says that you're wrong about something, that you're somehow you're not right. Those are all reasons that people become offended because somehow something that they've done or said is not acceptable by somebody else, or you've been punished for what you think is an unjust thing. Here's an example in our culture. If we disagree with each other, we might have an internal mechanism like this. Person A is my friend or family. The second supposition, friends and family don't disagree because this would be a betrayal. Therefore, if we disagree, we can't be friends and family, and I am justified in being offended because somehow you're betraying me if you don't agree with me. That's a type of offense that we all suffer with, that somehow that's a betrayal if you don't agree with me. Or person A is a stranger. Person A disagrees with my opinion. Person A is saying my thinking is wrong, which is a form of criticism. Therefore, I am justified in being offended at person A because they're criticizing the way I think. Or here's a third scenario. Person A is a stranger. Person A has been unjustly treated either currently or in the past. We know injustice is morally wrong. I should therefore be offended in general because of that morally wrong offense. And it is also a form of betrayal to not be offended by the experience of person A. Now, to bring this, to bring this a little closer, we've all known people We've all had friends that have been betrayed, like say by their spouse. Our natural response is to hold a third party offense against the person who's betrayed out of loyalty for the person we love, right? If we love our friend or family, we will be third party offended to the other person. I submit to you none of those are godly, although they're natural. 
But I submit to you, all those responses are not God's will for our life. But yet we all probably have experienced it and perpetrated it in our lifetime, right? And the reason is, is because offense stems from a legitimate desire for justice. Believe it or not, our God is a God of justice. We were made in the image of God. Therefore, when injustice occurs, we're going to feel it. It's natural for us to feel it. Here's a couple of scriptures. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Psalm 11:7. Righteousness and justice are found, are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it fully. Here's my favorite. This is Micah 6.8. You guys probably know this one. Mankind, he has told you what is good and what is it that the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. I submit to you that being offended stems from our image being made in the image of God. It's not that being offended is out in la-la land. It is actually part of who God made us to do. It's what we do with our offendedness that either is part of godliness or ungodliness. We either partner with the spirit of offense that's going on right now. And remember, you guys, the enemy is always trying to take something that is godly and twist it and pervert it and use it for his own means. It stems, it begins with a godly, normal, natural emotion and then becomes twisted into something that is evil and perverted, for lack of a better word. We have to be on the lookout for how the enemy takes good ideas and good things and twists them. It is good to stand up for injustice in our world. It is good to have righteousness be um, part of our character But we have to be led by the Holy Spirit so we don't fall on the other side of the ditch and partner with an agenda that the enemy has. Do you follow me? I think you're right. Number two, breeding the spirit of offense and participating in offense is a trap and it's a form of bondage. It's really easy to become offended in this in 2020. Am I right? I could be I was up in the mountains trying not to be offended the whole time. And I probably failed a couple of times, didn't I, babe? Didn't do a really good job. But unfortunately, being offended, participating and Um, we've all met people who are constantly offended about everything, right? I'm so annoyed. I'm so offended. They bug me, blah, blah, blah. Their, Their persona, their character is always complaining and always offended. That, unfortunately, is a sign of an immature person. And if you see it in a Christian, it's a sign of an immature Christian. It's a sign of an immature Christian. That's one reason for partnering with the spirit of offense. The other reason that we sometimes partner with the spirit of offense is because we have been offended. We have been treated unjustly in the past, and we are com- continuing to respond out of that unjustness until it's healed by the Lord. I think I've experienced this a lot in my life where I've had to struggle with being treated unfairly in one way or another. Instead of dealing with it at that moment, I carried it with me, carried it with me, carried it with me. And inappropriate 
Am I on? There we go. I always say what happens is what back here piles up, piles up, piles up. So then you have a number five event that you respond to at a number 10 level. And people are like, why are you responding at a number 10 level? Well, really, you're responding to all the stuff in your past you never dealt with. That's why I love Celebrate Recovery so much. Because Celebrate Recovery helps you to identify those boulders that you're carrying around of legitimate injustice, legitimate wounds and hurts that you haven't um, dealt with that cause you to over-respond in this place over here. Hi, Sterling. I love your haircut. I know, right? Thanks for coming, babe. That's what I like about salvation, and this is like what Brian Fenimore says. You know, salvation is not just salvation to eternal life. Salvation is to be saved here on earth of everything that traps us or keeps us in bondage, including our wounds and our hurts. We don't have to be, we don't have to carry that around. We can be so free of that. Today, today, when we let, I used to carry around with me a lot. Um, I, when I was back in North Carolina, I did a lot in that church, but I did here in, in, in the Rock. And I was super involved. I was on the board of trustees and, you know, all, whatever, different kinds of things. And it was many, many years ago, probably 30 years ago, that I was involved in that. And I remember one man said, he goes, well, you know, you have what I would call a very masculine personality. I'm like, why would I be considered, why is my personality masculine? Look, I'm preaching to almost all men. And his perception doesn't necessarily define who I am, but if you have a wound in that area, if you're not strong about who you are, you can receive something like that, and all of a sudden you can say that's an unjust statement of who I am. I am obviously a woman. I have feminine characteristics, why would my personality be associated with being masculine simply because I exert leadership, you know, characteristics? And that's simply, it was in North Carolina, it's a, you know, possibly a cultural thing, a generational thing, a southern thing, whatever, right? But I carried that with me for a big part of my life. This idea that strong women are somehow masculine or somehow not feminine or somehow not acceptable you need to like tone down your personality because it really doesn't fit with the way women should really be it took a lot for me to like and then in my job I had before it was I was a woman in a man's world mostly wouldn't you say Bob and you have to pardon me (laughs) you have to navigate the nuances of being a woman in a man's world yet being a woman and that's not an easy road to hoe. That's something that you just have to learn to do. But it does, it's not an identity statement about me. And I had to learn through Bob and um, Celebrate Recovery, I get to be fully me, fully a woman, fully Paula Waterman, fully a leader, not masculine, and not a man. And I had to forgive that man and men in general to not walk around with, to over-respond to that all the time. And now I feel like, I pray to God, I feel like, seriously, I pray to God, that I have come far beyond that. I believe that. You know, I I'm, work with Chris, we have our own business, we do our own thing. The thing I love about real estate and mortgages, 
There's no glass ceiling there. There's nobody saying, oh, you've got to make less money than this person over here. Nobody, it's just what you can do. It is completely dependent on what do you accomplish. You'll get the reward for that. And it's taught me a lot. I don't have to buy into the, the system of the world. Just because the world says one thing, I don't have to agree with that. They're not going to place an identity on me that is opposite of what the Lord has said about me. And I've come a long way to now, if I hear sexist or those kinds of things from anybody, I'm like, eh, they're messed up, whatever. And it, can, it rolls right off me. I, <laughs> there's a cool little saying. It's like you can come to a stump. A farmer is, is um, plowing a field, and he comes to a stump that's deeply ingrained. And he can take three days and dig that stump up and continue on with his work, or he can go and just plow around it and keep on going. And that's what I've decided. If you're going to be in my way, I'm just going around you. I'm not spending a lot of time trying to change your mind about anything or have much of a dialogue with you unless you want it. Just get out of my way. I'm just going to, I'm just going to plow around you and keep on going. And that's freedom. It's freedom not to be stuck in these areas of offense and um, feeling injustice all the time from your past, and you can't get through it. And I feel like so many people are stuck back here because they don't know better. They've been, they've been told horrible things by their family and maybe their culture or whatever. But the good news of Jesus Christ is we get to be saved from that in this life, not just the life to come. In this life, we get to be saved from the spirit of offense and entitlement and, and all that kind of thing, which keeps us so, I want to call it underachievers in the kingdom. You know, the Lord has a plan, and he has, I won't say achievements, for lack of a better word. He wants us to be an overachiever in the kingdom. He wants us to attain our destiny. And when we are partnering with the spirit of injustice and offense, we are underachievers in the kingdom. We are absolutely underachievers. Victim, right? I've been part of it. I know, I can, I'll own it. I've been part of it, you know? So a mature Christian will benefit from asking themselves, am I oversensitive in an area of my life? Does this point to an unhealed place in my life that maybe God is trying to talk to me about? Or if you're really brave, you'll ask your spouse or you'll ask a friend and say, what area do you see in my life that maybe I've got a wound that needs to be healed up? so that I don't walk around with the spirit of offense all the time. That takes a lot of guts, I think, to ask anybody to do that. Or you can ask the Holy Spirit. He's very gentle. You can ask the Holy Spirit. Why are you laughing? Well, oh, you sneezed. Okay. <laughs> I th- you know, the Holy Spirit is very gentle, but sometimes the Holy Spirit talks to us with, with skin, and that's okay too. Overcoming offense requires forgiveness. This is from Proverbs eighteen nineteen. A brother wronged is more unyielding than a fortified city. Disputes are like the barred gates of a citadel. Jesus says in Matthew 24, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And that he says this is a sign of the end times. Are we in the end times? I don't know. I don't know if we're in the end times. But it feels pretty end times-ish, doesn't it? Chris and I had a, um, you know, we have what we, every now and then we, we call it intense fellowship, which is not, doesn't, isn't always a good thing. I mean, it's, a good thing because we get to resolve. When I say, people misunderstand, they think that I'm saying something 
sexual. Intense fellowship is not that. Intense fellowship is you're like, oh, we have to have a conversation and resolve conflict. That's what I mean. The thing is, we're getting better and better at it. That's a really praise the Lord. We had a little bit of intense fellowship up in the mountains, and um, I was praying to God, and I just said, Lord, I don't, I don't want to go low, but I know that's, that's the key to resolving conflict. I believe that one of the number one issues in our world today is people don't know how to resolve conflict, especially in a godly way. They do not know how to resolve it. I was talking to one of my friends. You guys know I do mediation, and I said, marriages are just... Uh, disposable these days. People just tired of fighting the fight and they just throw them away and they don't even look back and they're not even emotional about it. Marriages shouldn't be that way. Relationships shouldn't be that way. Relationships are worth fighting for. That's why God fought for our relationship because we were worth fighting for and if we're worth fighting for from God's perspective, all the people in our lives are worth fighting for. The good news about me and Chris is we moved through this conflict pretty fast. 30 minutes, we were done, and on the other side of it. That's really healthy for us. Um, I was talking to, you guys know Paige Becknell. I was talking to her today. She does blended family ministry, and we were talking about disposable marriages and everything. And I said, you know, marriage and relationships, but marriage especially, is like a garden. You absolutely have to tend it and water it, and you have to pull the weeds out, and you've got to fertilize it, and you have to do everything that you would do with a garden. And if you don't, the weeds will take it over. There's no, like, coast (laughs) taking care of a garden. You're either on the garden or you're not. But the cool thing about a garden is what you plant, you plant a fruit tree or you plant something that's um, very valuable, you will absolutely reap that at the time, at the proper time. And that's the, I think that's the, the thing the Lord told me about our conflict was I felt his pleasure over it. Because I, you do have to go low. You have to, humble yourself and say, hey, we got to talk this, we've got, you know, let's talk, I'm sorry, you know, whatever. Um, there's, that's, a, that's a plant that I'm planting in our garden that I will see the fruit of down the road, and my kids will see the fruit of it down the road, and society will see the fruit of it down the road. And I'm absolutely convinced we have to learn to forgive better and quicker than we ever have before because we have to come out active against the spirit of offense. In fact, you had a conversation with somebody while we were up there, too, where there might be some reconciliation coming on. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read you the, um, well, I'll start with this. I never really wanted to believe this, but, you know, it's in the Bible, so it's probably true. How we forgive affects our forgiveness from God. Matthew eleven twenty five. And when you stand praying... If you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. I never really wanted to believe that, especially when you've been really bad to betrayed. You really don't want to believe that that's something you have to do. It takes a long time to get there. I'm going to read this parable. Jesus gave a parable. It's called the parable of the unmerciful servant. Later, Peter approached Jesus and said, this is from the Passion, I believe. How many times... Do I have to forgive my fellow believer who keeps offending me? Seven times? Jesus answered, not seven times, Peter, but 70 times seven. The lessons of forgiveness in heaven's kingdom realm can be illustrated like this. There once was a king who had servants who had borrowed money from the royal treasury. He decided to settle accounts with each of them. As he began the process, 
it came to his attention that one of his servants owed him one billion dollars. So he summoned the servant before him and said to him, pay me what you owe me. When his servant was unable to repay his debt, the king ordered that he be sold as a slave, along with his wife and children and every possession they owned as payment toward his debt. The servant threw himself face down at his master's feet and begged for mercy. Please be patient with me. Just give me more time and I will repay you all that I owe. Upon hearing his pleas, the king had compassion on the servant and released him and forgave his entire debt, $1 billion. No sooner had the servant left when he met one of his fellow servants who owed him $20,000. He seized him by the throat and began to choke him, saying, you'd better pay me right now everything you owe me. His fellow servant threw himself face down at his feet and begged, please be patient with me. If you'll just give me time, I will repay you all that is owed. But the one who had his debt forgiven stubbornly refused to forgive what was owed him. He had his fellow servant thrown into prison and demanded he remain there until he be repaid in full. When his associates saw what was going on, they were outraged and went to the king and told him the whole story. The king said to him, you scoundrel, is this the way you respond to my mercy? Because you begged me, I forgave you the massive debt that you owed me. Why didn't you show the same mercy to your fellow servant that I showed to you? In a fury of anger, the king turned him over to the prison guards to be tortured until all his debt was repaid. In this same way, my heavenly father will deal with any of you if you do not release forgiveness from your heart toward your fellow believer. That's a pretty big deal. That's, that's as straightforward as it gets. We have a responsibility to forgive because God's going to look at the way we forgive. So a couple of things I saw to this. 70 times 7 is a metaphor which represents an attitude of limitless forgiveness. It was uh, 7 is a perfect number, so 70 times 7 means forever and ever and ever. There's never a time when we get to not forgive. Never a time when we get to not forgive. As we see in the title of the parable, forgiveness is a form of of mercy. Remember, mercy is not getting what you should get. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you should deserve, which is punishment. Grace is getting favor that you don't deserve. So forgiveness is a form of mercy. It's a form of us not getting what we all deserve. Mercy is directly related. The mercy that we give is directly related to the mercy that we've received. If we don't realize that our debt to God is $1 billion, we may have a hard time showing mercy to somebody else for $20,000. The contrast in this is the first servant owed a billion dollars, which was never repayable. Could any of you guys, right where you're at, feel like you could pay a billion dollars back? Could you maybe pay back 20000 Could you scrape together 20000 So the, the contrast in these two servants is one had an unpayable debt that was forgiven him. The second had a payable debt. That debt could have been paid off had the servant been given time, but he was not forgiven his debt. The mercy was even greater for the first servant and lesser for the second, yet it was still not given to the second uh, the debt we owe God is a billion dollars. 
the, the parallel here is that sin is like a debt owed to God. And it's something we can never pay on our own. It's a billion dollars. <laughs> As Bob always reminds me, which is so good, forgiveness does not mean that we go out and trust people once again. It doesn't say in here the king said, here you go, have another billion dollars and go do what you need to do with it. That's not the point of this parable. The point is we release our need for justice because of what's been given us and we drop at the feet of God justice and we leave it in his hands. But we don't ever have to be in relationship with that person again unless the Holy Spirit leads us to it. We don't have to trust that person again. We, forgiveness is simply releasing justice to the hands of God. Would you agree with that, Bob? I want to run it past him because he's the expert. This is where I get tripped up in offense. This is my trap. If I let this go and if I forgive, then justice will not be served. Somehow justice will not be served if I let it go, as if I'm God, as if somehow I can impose justice. But don't we all try to do that? If I give them the cold shoulder, if I ignore them, if I do X, Y, or Z, somehow that punishment will motivate them or will serve justice. Any of you ever feel that way? We Christianize it by saying, everyone reaps what they sow. Everyone reaps what they sow. And I need to be part of that mechanism to help them reap what they sow. That's not necessarily wrong. Sometimes you do have, have boundaries. Boundaries are a legitimate thing. But when you apply it to a punishing attitude or withholding forgiveness, it is absolutely an ungodly principle. It's, you're, ab, you're perverting that principle for your own means. Like I said, I believe conflict resolution, good conflict resolution is the key to healthy relationships, and apparently I'm not alone, so I feel validated. In Africa, there was a ministry called the Jesus Film Project. You guys have heard of the Jesus Film before. And they decided there is so much conflict in Africa and, and the, a breakdown of the family um, unit and society that they were going to start at the top and minister to the top echelon of society that it would trickle down. So they took their film to the military and to the police to show them how to do proper or good conflict resolution. Because what they want to show, and, and there are so many Christians they were ministering to in Africa, in the military and in the police, that still had a problem with releasing forgiveness because there's been so much violence over there. People have been killed. Families have been torn apart. And they call themselves Christians, and yet they have a hard time releasing forgiveness because the fruit of forgiveness is reconciliation, is rebuilding society. The enemy does not want us to forgive. The enemy wants us to be held on. I'm going to show you in a minute some of the strategies. The thing about forgiveness is it requires radical obedience and radical actions. When Jesus hung on the cross, literally the people that had put the, the nails in his hand were at his feet gambling for his clothes. They, had, they weren't just metaphorically 
you know, put the nails in his hands or whatever. They literally hammered the nails in his hands and he looked down at them. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's radical. That's radical obedience. We are called to radical obedience and forgiveness just like that. That's what's going to turn the tide of what we got going on right now. That is the weapon that we use against the strategy of this power in principality is radical forgiveness and radical obedience. That's why I picked this topic. Because I believe we are in a hand-to-hand combat right now. More than the church has ever experienced. I believe we are in, at war. We are at war. I remember as we were praying here, um, and it was the God of Revival song. I mean, we were worshiping, it was the God of Revival song. I remember Brian Fenimore saying, this year there were supposed to be a dozen or more revival rallies across the country in football field stadiums that can no longer meet because of what we've got going on here. There was a plan to have football stadiums filled for people just to worship throughout this country. I believe we're in, we're in a kind of warfare we've never seen before. There's a book out called 33 Strategies of War by Robert Greene, and it's how I like to apply it to your everyday life. I'm going to read, I mean, 33 strategies. That's a lot of strategies. I'm going to read just like three of them because we see it, the enemy using it against us right now. Divide and conquer. Currently a primary strategy of our enemy. How does he get us to be divided against each other and stay in offense? Another one, and you wouldn't think this is an actual strategy, but this is a strategy, don't get caught with groupthink allow people to have different opinions. There is actually a strategy in this 33 strategies of war to promote a type of groupthink. So anyone outside the group is ostracized. That's an actual strategy. Here's one. It's called the turning strategy. Don't let your opponent see what you are really doing. Distract them to the front and attack them from the side. Misconception strategies. Since no creature can survive without the ability to see or sense what is going on around it, make it hard for your enemies to know what is going around, around, on around them, including what you are doing. Feed their expectations, manufacture a reality to match their desires, and they will fool themselves. Control people's perceptions of reality, and you control them. <laughs> That's crazy. As I was sitting here worshiping again to the God of revival, I was like... <laughs> If you looked at just the natural, you would say God is losing this war. You'd say the enemy is winning. There's chaos everywhere. Statues being pulled down. Division. Um, I just had a conversation with my son David this morning, and we had opposite, you know, and I had to be really low and keep my dialogue really low because we disagreed. It's everywhere. If you didn't keep your eye on the fact that God is in control He's sovereign, he's on the throne, he's never left it. You would be tricked with the perception that's being put out there, I believe. And then here's one that is, we often get hit with. It's called the righteous strategy. 
In a political world, the cause you are fighting for must be seen more than just the enemies. By questioning your opponent's motives and making them appear evil, you can narrow their base of support and room to maneuver. When you find yourself come under moral attack from a clever enemy, do not whine or get angry. Fight fire with fire. So the other tactic is I have righteous anger. I have righteous offense. Your motive is unrighteous. Your motive is X, Y, or Z. We have to be smarter than the enemy we're fighting, and we need to see through all those tactics. And we have got to stay, we have got to be the best soldiers we have ever been this year. We've got to link arms. We have to stand shoulder to shoulder with each other. When someone falls down, we've got to pull them out. We can't let our people be cut off or they're going to be picked off. We have got to, especially you men, we need the protection of not seeing and not being distracted by fendable things in our world and looking past and looking beyond that, saying, what's really going on here? How do I come out of partnership with this tactic of the enemy? I will not partner with it. And the, the solution to that is being aware of what the enemy is doing and practicing radical, radical obedience and forgiveness in the area of offense. Let us pray. Amen. <laughs> I'm going to pray for our country. We need to pray for our country every day. So just pray with me, Lord. I thank you. I thank you for America, God. I thank you, Lord, that we can freely meet and worship you, God. I pray, Father, that you would preserve our freedoms, God. I pray, Lord, that your hand would be in our country. I pray for our president. God, I, I've been saying this to Chris every day. I pray for a Nebuchadnezzar moment in his life where he recognizes you as the God of the universe and that you touch his heart, that you move through him and you make him a righteous ruler in our land. I pray that you preserve him and everyone who's around him. I pray for every leader. I pray for our governor, Father God, the same thing for our governor, that you would touch him, that he would have a God encounter, that this shaking that's going on in our country would bring the people to their knees. They would recognize who you are. They would turn towards you, that we would experience a revival like we have never seen before. We say yes and amen to what you're doing in our hearts and in our country. We say that we will stand the ground. We will be the army that links arms. We're not going to have friendly fire and fire at each other. We're going to link arms, and we're going we're gonna to hold the ground against the enemy, and we're going to take ground against the enemy. This is going to be a year that we take ground from the enemy. We love you, Lord. We say yes and amen to everything you're doing, God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.